0: Well, the book of Acts is really a sequel. It's a sequel to the gospel of Mark. uh, Sorry, to the gospel of Luke, written by Luke. And it's interesting because in our society today, we have lots of sequels. In fact, every movie that seems to be successful seems to spawn another movie, a a sequel or a prequel. In the last 10 years, the largest franchise has been those Marvel movies, which have spawned 23 sequels and pre- prequels. That's If you were to watch that, that's more than 50 hours, more than two days of your life. This is seemingly what's going on. A while back, uh, our family was watching a Muppets movie, and this was a sequel movie, and the movie was entirely forgettable. I can't even tell you anything about it. But probably the best part of it was the song that they sang. And they said, the lyrics go, we're doing a sequel. That's what we do in Hollywood. And everybody knows that the sequel's never quite so good. That's it's true. Kind of, isn't it? Whether it's a book series or a movie series, it seems that more often than not, the second one or the third one is never quite as good as the original. And when you come to the book of Acts, you might be t- tempted to think the same thing. We just come through the gospel of Luke, for example. You guys are going through the gospel of John, and, and you have Jesus there, and you have his vital ministry. And then Jesus ascends, and, and the book, book begins with Jesus' ascension. It's like, oh, well, what, what could come after that? What, what, could, what could improve upon the gospels? And you might be tempted to, to think about this and, and, and to consider, well, you know, the book of Acts is just a sort of a, a history of the early church. And It's kind of interesting, but not as instructive as Jesus's words that's there. But one of the things we need to understand is that when the book of Acts was written, it was actually written as the second scroll of the book of Luke. They didn't publish books like we do in the in nice codex form, which is open up like that They did it in scrolls and parchment and the longest parchments were about 10 meters long And the book of luke would have filled a full parchment and so the second part of Luke if you want to think of it that way the book that we call the acts of the apostles uh, volume 2 luke volume 2 was on another scroll but After the Gospels were sort of compiled together, they're often grouped together. And you have the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But as it was written and presented to the church, it would have been Luke part one and Luke part two. And so this is a new scroll, but it's a continuing story. So it's not so much a sequel as a continuing of the narrative of Jesus Christ. The book is called The Acts of the Apostles. But really it focuses on two apostles, mainly, Peter and Paul. And the acts of these and the other apostles are part of it. But what's interesting is that if you examine it, it's mainly about evangelism. It's mainly about reaching lost people. After all, almost a third, 30% of the book is caught up with evangelistic preaching. It's just sermons that have been summarized and presented. And it's a a declaration of the gospel. What is the gospel? Why do we need it? And how we don't deserve it. There's lots of action here. There's preaching the gospel and and missionary journeys and various other things. But it's central. The, The Acts of the Apostles is not really descriptive in that sense. You see, you can see this when you compare the beginning of the book of the Acts of the Apostles and the end. Many people look at the book of the the Acts of the Apostles and think of it as this historical narrative about the growth of the church. But you can't make sense of the book of the Acts without the work of God. And it's the continuing work of Jesus Christ. Because as we begin the book of Acts, as we just read, we see that the disciples are in shock and they're in disarray. One of their own, has betrayed them, both Jesus and all of them, Judas. Then, they unexpectedly have lose their leader on the cross. Only then is he raised again. And the closing verses in the book of Luke capture their shock. They were falling apart. They were afraid and uncertain. And that's how the book of Acts begins, with the apostles and the disciples in disarray. But it ends a lot differently. If you turn to the end of the book of Acts, you see that it ends with the apostle Paul facing his trial. In Acts 28.31, it, it presents a different view. It says that he was proclaiming the gospel of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and And without hindrance. So the book of Acts begins in disarray. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the narrative of the gospel, goes forward with power. Amplifying as it goes through this book. And the only way for us to account for this transition from fear at the beginning to boldness at the end. Is through the power of God working through the Holy Spirit. R.C. Sproul, when he looks at the book of Acts, his suggested title is The History of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Seeing the third person of the Trinity carrying on the work of the second person of the Trinity. F.F. Bruce calls it The Continuing Acts of Jesus Christ. As really, the book is a continuation of Jesus' ministry. Remember, he promised that he would never leave them nor forsaken, but that he would send a helper to them. And it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that the church can grow. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives can be transformed. We live in in a world that is often hopeless. The question is, can someone change? Can there really be anything different about us? Or are we really just liars and and cheats and everything else underneath the gospel changes people profoundly when there has been a true transformation people move from darkness to light and the book of acts is all about that power of transformation you see Saul, the persecutor of the church holding the coats of the men as they stone stephen and at the end he is facing death in order to proclaim the gospel that he once hated That's the power of the gospel, to transform and change and work. And it's only the power of God that accomplishes this. Maybe not in exactly the same way is it evidenced today. But I believe that the same narrative that began in the the, the Acts of the Apostles and began manifesting in the church in the time of the Acts of the Apostles is continuing today. We continue to have the Holy Spirit. And he continues to empower us and to enable us to proclaim the gospel and to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The books of Acts comes at a pivotal and transitional period in the history of scripture. We move from a a, a time when the gospel was entirely oral to being written down. And so we see prophets and the, the use of prophecy throughout the book. But as we see in the New Testament developing, it becomes written down as the letters get written. The emphasis becomes not so much on the prophetic gifts, but on the word itself. Indeed, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy that if he has the word of God, it is written for our instruction. And he, 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 he talks about it being fully equipped at that particular point in time. God works through his word and God of history works through his church. We're going to see as we go through these, these series here, that there is a continuing aspect to the work of Jesus Christ in the church of Jesus Christ today. Some of you may have heard of the, uh, the organization, the missions organization, Acts 29, Acts 29, Now you might think to yourself, if you haven't heard of them, I thought there were only 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And there are only 28 chapters. The genius of their name is that they continue the work of Jesus Christ. And that's, I think, a really helpful thing for us to think about. How are we continuing the work of Jesus Christ? What about it, CRBC? You've had almost three good years of discipleship and ministry. And you have begun to carry the gospel into this neighborhood here around the Pasture Road community. There's lots more that we can do in this neighborhood and in the 11 parishes. When John and I were discussing the planting of this church here in Barbados, we wanted to plan big. We wanted to see what the Lord could do. And John expressed to me that his dream would be that there would be a solid church in each of the 11 parishes in Barbados. Does that seem impossible? It sounds really hard, but it's not impossible with the Lord. It is God who built his church. It's not John or myself or you necessarily. It's his Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this power in evidenced in the early church. And I believe that the Holy Spirit still empowers and works within the church of Jesus Christ today. My prayer and hope as we look through these next three messages is that this would inspire and encourage us to carry the gospel forward to our friends, to our family, to our co-workers, and to carry on the work of Jesus Christ, which is what he designed for us to do. This is the good work that he has called for us to do. Now we're going to look at these opening verses of Luke's account under a couple of headings this evening. In our text, we see a progression from in, in, in Luke's uh, Luke's introduction here from identifying with the past Explaining the present and anticipating the future ministry of Jesus Christ through his people, through his servants. In the first two verses here, verses 1 and 2, Luke summarizes the past history of Christ. And then in verses 3 to 11, we have Jesus commissioning his disciples, both in view of the present and anticipating the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So, our headings this evening will be quite simple. The past ministry of Jesus, verses 1 and 2. And verses 3 to 11, the present and future ministry of Jesus Christ. So let's look first of all at the past ministry of Jesus Christ that we see there in those first few verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, when we talk about the the Acts of the Apostles, this is a book that's written very soon after the work of Jesus Christ, very soon after the ascensions. Most scholars believe that Luke wrote the book of Acts no later than 60 A.D., if you think Jesus died in around 33 to 36 A.D., this would have been in living memory of that event. And since there's no mention of the horrible persecution of Christians under Nero in 64 A.D., they, they, they usually date it earlier than that. So the, the point is that, that this is being presented to Theophilus as a living eyewitness testimony. Now it's important for us to understand that as the writer of a historical narrative, Luke has been Esteemed as the most accurate historian of the ancient world. According to R.C. Sproul, Luke enjoys a higher reputation among scholars than Suetonius, Herodotus, Tacitus, Pliny, Josephus, or any of the rest. His work has been checked more carefully and examined more closely than anybody else's. You might wonder yourself well, how can we check the accuracy of? Of, the, uh, of Luke's um, account from the vantage point of 20, 21 centuries later. But obviously there are a few things that we cannot check, but there are many things included in this work that do have testability. That is, they can be verified or falsified by archaeology. And it's interesting. Um, one of these, in, in the 19th and 20th centuries, there was a push... In archaeological digs in uh, Asia Minor, in the place where the Bible uh, and and where the Acts of the Apostles occurred. And there was a, a British scholar by the name of William Mitchell Ramsey. And he was a skeptic about Christianity. And he set out to destroy Christianity by trying to show that all of the statements that Luke makes in in Acts, where he carefully records names, where he carefully records places, where he carefully records uh, all, all sorts of little details, he figured if he could show that those things had no bearing in history, then he would be able to undermine and expose the gospel for the fraud that it was. Indeed, many higher critics had come to the conclusion that Acts wasn't an an invention. It was a fiction. But as he looked for evidence in the landscape in ruins, and as he uncovered uh, inscriptions uh, of the local rulers or magistrates in foreign cities that were not common knowledge to people who lived in Jerusalem, he started to see that there was a clear consistency between what Luke records in the book of Acts and what was being borne out by the historical evidence. It's been said that it was as if the stones were crying out that every title of every magistrate Luke recorded in the book of Acts was being verified by the turning over of the shovels in the early 20th century. And the descriptions that are given in the book of Acts of the towns were just as Luke described them, as the the archaeologists went in. Now, this is an interesting fact. I I, I don't think that this is where we start with unbelievers. But if you look at the archaeological evidence, it's actually really encouraging. For many years, uh, liberal scholars and and indeed those who didn't believe the Bible would criticize Christians for believing in Pontius Pilate. Pilate, that key figure who washed his hands and condemned Christ and handed him over to to be crucified. Many believe that he never existed. And they mocked Christians for their supposed historical accuracy. But then, an archaeological dig in 1962 in Caesarea Maritima found an inscription with his exact name and credentials, just as had been recorded in the Gospels. And the point in bringing this out, and the point in terms of how how Luke begins here, is that what we are doing and what we are reading is history. It is history, and as history and as a historical record, it cannot be ignored. It cannot be dismissed. It must be confronted, and it's important for us to realize that as we consider sharing the gospel with others. One of my first jobs out of university was selling cars. Yes, that was my first job. I hated the job. Initially, I enjoyed the job because I believed in what we were doing. We were trying to find a cheaper way to sell cars to families. And so I would go out and I would tell people all about the wonders of the Auto Depot. That was the the name of the company that I worked for. But... The, uh, the, the employers that I worked for were Pentecostal. And they were, they were godly men in their own way. But they started to bring in prosperity teaching into, our, uh, into our, our staff meetings. And it just got so odious that I lost all energy. I had no desire to be pushing cars for the sake of confirming their false presuppositions about prosperity theology. You see, when you believe in something, and you believe that it's something that is helpful... You're evangelical in terms of telling people about it. Look, I can save you money. Look. And I, I remember, I, I think I was pretty odious to some of my family members. I was an early 20s person. I was like, why would you ever buy a car any other way? Right? When you believe in something, you want to tell people about it. You want them to be engaged. And one of the encouragements I can say to you, brothers and sisters, is as we carry this gospel forward... We need to have confidence in its authenticity, in its accuracy, in its historicity. Because if it's if what it's saying is true, and it is true, then it has the power to transform everybody and anybody. It has the power to transform this country, and indeed, this world. Historically, we have seen massive revivals. The Great Awakening that happened in the 17th and 18th centuries of the United States converted a third of the population of the United States. Think about that. That's 300 million people today. That would be 100 million people coming to faith. Could you imagine if a third of the population of Barbados mm-hmm. came to faith in Jesus Christ? Could that happen? You say, oh, I don't know. It's, yeah, Yes, it could. Because the Holy Spirit is still at work. The Holy Spirit is still powerful. And I want to encourage us that this is true. This is not some ancient book. This is history. And it's history that is repeated over and over and over again. As we see the the work of of, of the kingdom to establish his church continuing through generations. And as we just sang, it's, it's the unfinished task. And it's our privilege to engage in it to see the gospel go forward in Barbados and beyond. The book of Acts uh, opens very similarly to the book of Luke. I mentioned his name, but you may not know who he is, this Theophilus. But if you look in the the beginning of, of, of Luke, we see that he addresses the same guy. He is the patron of Luke. And he says this in the beginning of Luke, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word here delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also having followed all these all things closely for some time to write a most orderly to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught that you might have certainty considering the things that you have taught. Now that's a remarkable claim. that Luke begins his book with. And as we said, Luke was a careful historian. How did Luke come to understand the events that he's writing about? The things that have been accomplished among us? Or as Acts 1 verse 1 says, all that Jesus began to do or teach. Well, it's laid out for us here. First, there are eyewitnesses who carefully deliver them to us. As a good historian, Luke identifies eyewitnesses. And we see the the, the four Gospels as eyewitness testimony, confirming and, and presenting different perspectives on the same events. Secondly, we note that he was not the only one to make an orderly account. Good to me also, as he phrases it here. Notice that he puts down an orderly account. He has investigated and researched his material carefully. He was an educated man. He was a doctor. Who would have been very well known in the church and indeed accompanied the apostles on various missions that he's writing about. So he's writing as an eyewitness himself. And he's writing with certainty. Luke 1 verse 4 makes it clear that this is no fictional account. And that the power of the word was with the spirit of God. And was intended to grant salvation and assurance to Theophilus. His goal in writing the book of Luke was to convert Theophilus that you may have certainty. And this is the same man that he references here at the beginning of the book of Acts. So Paul doesn't leave us or Luke does not leave us in any doubt here as he begins. he basically puts us in a bit of a corner. And this is what often happens with the word of God. Either we accept the word of God at face value as an accurate historical account of things, or we see it as a deliberate attempt to mislead a set of lies foisted on the public to promote this religion. Let me ask you, which is it to you this evening? Do you believe that this is the word of God? See, it's basic. Let me just ask you that again. Do you believe that this is the word of God? All of it. Not just the parts that you like, but all of it. Not just the parts that comfort you. What about the parts that tell you that you are a miserable sinner in need of the gospel? Is this word true to you? It either is or it is not. Luke leaves us no choice. And this is really important for us to grasp. You see, many people here in Barbados claim to be Christian. But do they believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word for their life? They might say so, but do they live like it? And as we go into the communities, and as we carry this gospel forward, we must call attention to the fact that the Bible is true and authoritative. And all of us without exception, are under its authority and teaching. Many people will say that they believe the Bible, but when you question them, either they don't follow what it says, or they don't even know what it says. So witnessing, carrying the gospel forward, being the witnesses that God has redeemed. As he spoke in the Old Testament, as we heard in the Law and the Gospel portion, he's also calling us to be witnesses. It begins with bearing witness to the truthfulness of the Bible. And you need to be settled on that yourself before you go out and try and persuade others. Theophilus is someone who has been taught the gospel and he's familiar with it. But the gospel is not just a teaching. Christianity is a person. It's about a person. Luke is saying to Theophilus, I've written you already about him. That is Jesus. Now I'm going to tell you more about him. this is something we need to understand. Christianity is not just a moral outlook. It's not a set of political or social views. It has implications for all of that. But Christianity starts with a historical person. It starts with Jesus Christ, Jesus Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus, the Son of God. He is the theme and the focus for both the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And it's very interesting that his work continues through the church. And this is a distinguishing factor of Christianity here in this first two verses. John Stott summarizes these first two verses of Acts this way. He says, Luke's first two verses are therefore extremely significant. It's no exaggeration to say that they set Christianity apart from all other religions. These other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Luke says Jesus only began his after his resurrection, ascension and gift of the spirit. He continued his work first and foremost through the ministry of his chosen apostles and subsequently through the post apostolic church in every period and place, including this one. This is the amazing thing. Jesus lives now. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. And the same God who raised him from the dead is still at work. And he's still working through his church. He's still working through this church. Again, brothers and sisters, do you actually believe that? Do you see that? Do you see it in the church? Do you see it in your own life? Too often, we too are skeptics. Too often we're skeptics, but God is the one who makes us believers. God changes us and transforms us. You see, the mere presentation of facts is not enough. Intellectual knowledge is something that the Apostle James says that even the devils have. And shudder. They know it's real, but they have not done anything about it. What about you this evening? As you encounter the truthfulness of Scripture, how have you responded? Have you bent the knee? To Jesus Christ. Or have you said that's nice. And maybe I'll take part of it. But I'll live my life my own way. God wants all of you. He demands all of you. Do you live in the light of his word. And his truth. Does the power of God. Does the word of God have authority over you? Are you reading it for yourself? Are you reading it in order to change? Is it a means to you of grace? Something that you depend on for nourishment and strength. As we see in verses 3 to 5, secondly, the present ministry situation is explained. And in verse 6 and 7, the future ministry of Christ is anticipated. In verse 3, he says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, it's easy for us to pass over this as a transitional period, but it's important for us to see a few things here. First, it's significant that Jesus starts with their minds before he sends them out with the Holy Spirit. He starts with proofs, as verse 3 says. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs. Now, many people think, and I imagine that this is common here in Barbados, it's still common in uh, Toronto and elsewhere, that what the church actually needs is more of the Holy Spirit. And what they mean is questionable in terms of that. What often is really being said is that we need less doctrine, we need less preaching and teaching, we need more music and movement and all of those things. By the way, arguing that we need more Holy Spirit and less doctrine is actually, ironically, a doctrine in and of itself, right? It's an argument. Now, you may have heard, as I have often heard, the phrase, doctrine divides, You heard that before once or twice, right? Yet it's interesting because that's not the concern of the Bible. The Bible is focused on doctrine. It's focused on providing teaching. And in fact, if you look at the scriptures, the Bible never, ever pits learning against power or doctrinal truth against the Holy Spirit. Worship is always in spirit and in truth. And there is no spirit without truth, and there is no truth without the spirit. The two are intertwined. They go hand in hand. If you turn over to the book of Ephesians chapter 3, you'll see it put well and presented well in Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. He prays this way, he says, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You see that? There's an intermingling that occurs here. That we're strengthened with power through the Spirit. But we're strengthened to do what? To comprehend. That you may have the strength to comprehend the, the breadth and length and height and depth of the Gospel. The Spirit and the truth work together. You can't have the Spirit of power without comprehension. But comprehension isn't sufficient without the Spirit. You need both. Mind and body. Soul and Spirit. Apostle Paul affirms this again in Romans 1. He says, The gospel is the power of God. It doesn't just bring the power of God, it is the power of God. The Spirit's power does not work apart from the truth. It is only as the truth enlightens the heart and we are enabled to grasp the truth that the Spirit gives us the power and love and confidence to be witnesses. It's inseparable the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth. So it's clear then that we need to know the teaching of Jesus Christ. And this is what we see here. He's before he sent out his first disciples. He instructed him. He instructed them for 40 days. The apostles had seminary. You ever think about that? But what did it consist of? What do you think Jesus covered in those 40 days? What an amazing thing to have Jesus as your seminary professor. For 40 days. Well, I think what he covered is much of what he had referred to back in Luke. Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, he appears and he says this in Luke 24, verse 44. <clears throat> And forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The first thing that I think Jesus did in this little 40 day seminary was give them a tool for understanding and interpreting the Bible that they already knew. We were looking at reading and understanding the Bible. And so we need to know what this tool is called. What did he give them? He gave them a hermeneutic, a principle for understanding the Bible. And what was it? It was a Christ-centered hermeneutic. He said, it's all about me. It's all about me. All the Bible is written about Jesus. And he said, that's the first thing that they needed to understand. And frankly, they didn't get it until Jesus taught it to them. He had to open their minds. He had to open their minds to understand the Scriptures. And this is what the Spirit does to us as we read the Scriptures and start to believe them and trust them. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to open our minds to the truth. It's not just an emotional experience. The emotions are involved, of course, but the Spirit opens our minds and and warms our hearts that these things are true that we are hearing. That's a really important statement that he he opened their minds. It's, It's not just some classroom instruction where he stood at the front and lectured them. No, it was a spiritual gift. How amazing would it be for you to go through a spiritual survey course with Jesus through the Old Testament and have him open your mind to understand it fully and completely. And we saw that he taught them about the gospel, repentance and forgiveness of sins. He starts with the basics. This is all about me. But the the important thing for you to understand is repentance and forgiveness of sins. Repentance, as we've said before, perhaps you've encountered before, repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards God. How do you do that? How do you turn away from sin and toward God? We have people that try to be moral in our society. But mere morality is not enough. There was a famous American um, founding father and inventor, Benjamin Franklin. I'm sure you've all heard about him. He was actually friends with George Whitfield. He never professed faith, but he was interested and intrigued by him. And he was concerned about moral character. And so he determined that he himself would become a moral man. And so he kept a diary, and he would address each of the seven deadly sins in seven uh, separate weeks. And he would seek to conquer a particular sin or defect. But it was interesting, as he was reflecting on it, he said, as soon as I would conquer one thing, he said, that little thing of pride would come up, and I could not keep it down. He was not successful in achieving the morality that he saw. Repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is something that God has to give. We can never complete victory over sin. Only Jesus can. We cannot do it at our own strength. And then forgiveness of sins is, again, only something God can do. And the Jews knew this truth, which is why they wanted to kill Jesus in the first place, because he claimed he was the one who could forgive sins. So there's an enormous content of doctrine that Jesus is conveying. He's saying all the scripture is written about me and you are to repent and believe. You are to repent and seek the forgiveness of sins. What else did he talk about? Again, there's a lot in this little section here. Verse three, he talks about the kingdom of God. He said he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the forty days, and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus taught a lot about kingdom theology. And the kingdom that Jesus spoke about was not a kingdom like the United Kingdom with with, with walls and and castles and that kind of thing. No, the kingdom of Christ is his rule and authority. was established on the foundation of his crucifixion and resurrection. This is what established the kingdom, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ now and forever was started then, was inaugurated then. The king of kings has been crowned with all authority. And so he was encouraging them to take part in his kingdom. And he spoke about that. Imagine a class on kingdom theology with Jesus Christ. But not only did Jesus give his disciples a hermeneutical survey of the Old Testament, not only did he help prepare them to be witnesses, to explain the gospel, not only did he tell them about the kingdom, but he also made a promise to them. Verse 5. He made this promise. He said, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. His promise was that he would send them the Holy Spirit to equip them to be witnesses. Now, it's important to understand what this baptism of the Holy Spirit, that that when this baptism of the Holy Spirit did come, we saw, we see that it fell not just on the apostles, but on every believer at that time, over 120 Christians. We see this in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of br- persons was in all about 120. And we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit coming on that group. And this is what we should expect. If we look and what we read earlier in the Great Commission. All those bearing witnesses for Christ must first receive power when the Holy Spirit has come. That's what verse 8 says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So if all Christians are commissioned as witnesses, then all of them would have to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Why am I emphasizing this? Well, as many of you know, we have brothers in Christ who are in Pentecostal churches. But they erroneously teach that you can be a Christian and not have received the Holy Spirit. But unlike their erroneous teaching, there isn't any true Christian that has not received the Holy Spirit. The reverse would be true as well. The fact that the Spirit falls on every Christian in Acts 2 proves that the commission of Acts 1, verse 6-8 is given to all believers. Now, think about that for a second. Do you understand the wonder and the power that is granted to you and to me as a result? God has not conditioned us to passivity, to a casual Christianity. He has called you and me to be witnesses. We are an important part of the plan that he has to extend his kingdom. He uses weak vessels Weak, fearful vessels like you and like me to build his kingdom. He uses our weak, stumbling words, faltering testimony to point people to himself. And the Spirit uses these words, as long as we are true to his gospel, to save sinners. Do you ever think about that? I love how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, it's through the foolishness of what is preached that men are saved. And even then, in Philippians, when there are those who are using Paul's situation to preach against him, he says, whether by false motives or true, Christ is preached. And there's power in Christ being preached, even erroneously. Now It's important to distinguish between the ministry of the Apostles in the book of Acts and what's available to us today. There are certain things we share and certain things we do not. What we do not share with the apostles is the unconditional, unquestionable authority of their teaching. The apostles were specially chosen and appointed by Jesus to carry his message forward, to write out the scriptures by inspiration. Their word, carried along by the Holy Spirit, has a higher standard. And it's a standard by which all other teaching is to be measured. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, immediately before this, Paul is telling the church that they must evaluate the prophets. In other words, the church is called to evaluate all teaching. How? By seeing if it matched the apostolic standard. So I know in our society and in this culture here you have people say, well I have a word from the Lord. I have a word for you. That's a serious claim. And it must be evaluated according to the scriptures. And indeed, false prophecy and the, and the penalty for false prophecy has not stopped. In the Old Testament the only way that they judged prophets was ultimately whether what they prophesied came true. And if they didn't Come true, what happened? They picked up stones and killed them because it was blasphemy. It was blasphemy. It was serious. The writings of the apostles are the New Testament scriptures and they are the foundation of the church, as Ephesians 2 20 puts it. And the apostolic preaching ministry, teaching ministry, still continues, but only through the scriptures that have been inscripturated. Not through authoritative individuals. We don't have apostles anymore. Because Paul identifies in 1 Corinthians as the last apostle. So you can see out there, you know, apostle so-and-so, apostle so-and-so. They're not an apostle like the apostle Paul. They do not have the authority of the apostle Paul. Only he and the 12 apostles with him had that authority. It was a once thing that came to an end. But what we do share with the apostles is the power and effectiveness of evangelism. You and I didn't have 40 days of instruction by Jesus. We were not personally selected by Him on earth to establish His church. But if we are, if we are Christians, part of that church, and we are called to be witnesses to it. And it is a grand and a wonderful privilege to do that. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of sharing the gospel with someone. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that a Christian gets to do to open someone's eyes or to to attempt to open someone's eyes to the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. There is a thrill that goes along with communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ, opening the the, the, the floodgates of grace to, to point sinners to a savior. That's a great privilege. Now, because Acts is a time of transition and a time when the apostles were living and ministering, it means it can be difficult to apply the lessons that we see in the book and in the teaching of this book to our current situation. We cannot simply read anything that the early church did, since its elders were apostles, and just assume that we would do it the exact same way here in Bridgetown in 2020. We have to be careful not to simply try to copy everything that the early church did. It's important to keep a balance in mind. Tim Keller identifies two opposite dangers to avoid in reading the book of Acts. On the one hand, we must not forget that there is some distance between us and the church in Acts. On the other hand, we mustn't put too much distance between ourselves and them. Many today in the charismatic movement have read Acts as if the apostles' ministry was not unique... And as a result, they assume that we must copy everything that they did. On the other hand, many many other people, often in the reform camp, who dislike the charismatic movement, have overreacted to their emphasis on power and experience. And in so doing, they minimize the power of the Spirit and the barrier-breaking effectiveness of witness that's still available to us. Brothers and sisters, do we expect to see people coming to faith here in Barbados? Coming to Christ? I remember Spurgeon was talking to one of his students. And uh, the student was discouraged. And he felt as if his preaching was flat. And it was ineffective and Spurgeon asked he said you know Spurgeon so many people are saved under your ministry and no one has been saved under mine and Spurgeon said to him a simple thing did you expect anyone to be saved when you preached the word and the man said honestly no and Spurgeon said you got what you expected but you see we don't have to have that expectation we can be skeptical Or we can approach the work of witness with faith. Understanding that this is how God has worked in the past. Through fishermen, through tax collectors, and sinners. To establish the largest religion in the world. And to proclaim His truth from every city and nation in the world. Do you have that understanding of the gospel? We should expect to see people coming to Christ we should pray do you pray for conversions do you expect them when you invite people to come first John 5 verse 14 it says this and this is the confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us do you pray I often pray and say Lord I believe it's your will to, to convert and to, and, to, and to save the lost and I'm inviting this person to come Please save them. Please. You plead for God to fulfill his promises. The Bible says this is your will. You're a kind and loving and a gracious God. You don't suffer any perish. Please have mercy on my brother. Please have mercy on my aunt, on my friend, on my coworker. Do we expect this? So we need to approach the book of Acts with this balanced perspective. We need to interpret it with humility. We mustn't use it to beat people over the head with this church is in spirit field unless we have miracles like we see in the book of Acts. But on the other hand, we must not avoid the clear picture of a vital living church where people are growing and changing by the power of the gospel. We must measure ourselves by it and seek God's help to be all that he wants his church to be. We need to pray, brothers and sisters. We need to pray for the, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We want to see people saved through the ministry and testimony of CRBC Barbados. But we will not see them saved if we do not pray expectantly, if we don't approach it in faith. And we need to remember that even the apostles didn't know everything. But he asked a question there in verse 6. It's kind of a, a silly question from our, our standpoint. But it's not. They said, so And then they come together, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're not being stupid. For their question had a basis in the Old Testament. They understood that the Messianic era had dawned. And they assumed that the final salvation of Israel was at hand. They didn't yet understand everything because they didn't yet have the Holy Spirit. What's interesting about this is that Jesus brings a view very clearly that goes beyond the salvation of ethnic Israel. Look at what he says in response to you. He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus had long hinted at this in his ministry. But it's at this point that he makes very clear that the mission is not to just a narrow group of, of, of believers at Jerusalem. That, that they weren't supposed to keep themselves together. They weren't to huddle together and build a new tower of Babel. No, they were to go out and they were to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations. And notice he says in Judea, in Samaria. Oh, Samaria. That's where all the sinners are, Right. That was where the woman in the well was, where they had the false teaching and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus has a vision that goes far beyond this. And it still takes the disciples a long time. The only time that they really go out, as we'll see next week, is when the persecution comes. They still gather and they huddle together around Jerusalem. I think this is our natural inclination is to just sort of turtle in, right? Right? It's hard enough in life. Why do we need to go out? We need to go out because God commands us. We need to go out because that is what pleases God. And that is what gives us great joy in the communication of his truth, in seeing the salvation of sinners. This is our privilege, brothers and sisters, to carry forward the gospel into our community, into our city, and into our country. We go into not just Bridgetown and Town, but we go to Grenada, and we go to Canada, the ends of the earth. That's our kingdom calling as well. Now, it's easy to be intimidated. And we're going to talk about that in, in, in a subsequent message. We have a lot of fear associated with evangelism. But Acts 1 reminds us that Christ has given a calling to the church to carry his gospel to the ends of the earth. And Barbados is one of the ends of the earth. And we have a commission to fulfill, and the power through the Holy Spirit to do it. Every true church of Christ does. We have a responsibility to our local city, to the surrounding area, and to the ends of the earth. Christ has called it and commissioned us in the Great Commission to do that. That's the very express purpose and reason for a church to exist. To extend the Great Commission. And he's equipped us through an authoritative apostolic word. He's prepared us, and now he ends his instruction. This servant, this this, this, this uh, seminary experience will end with me rising up into heaven. How is that for establishing authority and power that he actually can do what he did? And then we see this: the apostles just watch him as he go, goes up, and and we have a beautiful description here. In verse 9, and when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way. This cloud, and again, the imagery is from the Old Testament, that kind of glory cloud that came down, the presence of God. Some of the disciples had already witnessed this. Remember Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration back in Luke 9. And, and remember when they, when they came and they, they came under the cloud and they heard the voice of God saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's authoritative. This is God's word. Listen to him. Do what he says. And now he's lifted up and he's ascended up into it. And he will come back. In triumph in fact the angels who come alongside explain and tell that he will come in the same way that he left Jesus is promoted to heaven he's gone before us and he continues with us in spirit and Jesus Hebrews says that he is now in heaven interceding for us and for our work and our work is the same as the Israelites in the Old Testament that we read in that passage earlier in In Isaiah 43, we are to be his witnesses. He has redeemed us. He's bought us out of sin. But he's bought us for a purpose. To proclaim and to indeed free the captives through the the testimony of the gospel of grace. Through the, the proclamation of the word of Jesus Christ. Reaching lost people with the hope that is found for redemption from sins in Jesus Christ. You see, CRBC, we have a commission from Jesus Christ to go out and to speak the gospel, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides, not our own wisdom, but in the instruction and the equipment that he has given us in his word, not for our own glory, but for his glory. And he has promised that he will be with us and that he will use our efforts, our weakness to establish his great kingdom. From sea to shining sea. Till the word of God stretches all over the planet. And Jesus returns. Brothers and sisters, we have a great commission. We have work to do. And we need to arise and do it. May God enable us to do so. Amen.